Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. This has been a difficult week after several difficult weeks. Protest, division, clashes and conflict here in Canada, but also abroad in Ukraine. In fact, we're working on a future episode looking directly at war and climate change. But today, we're taking a pause from that to bring you an episode focused on some good news, good climate news. People making a difference in big and small ways. Changes that are happening that others can look to as inspiration. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. We lived in a brownstone in Brooklyn, in Bedside, Brooklyn, and it was, you know, old building, neglected, 100 years old. It didn't have a functioning heating system. Um, And many of our neighbors' buildings didn't have functioning heating systems. And so we would actually heat our apartment building by turning on the oven and opening up the oven door and then opening up the apartment window to release all of the unhealthy chemicals that, and gases that uh, came out of the oven. So, you know, there's methane, there's nitrogen dioxide, there's carbon monoxide. And that is how we and many of our neighbors heated our homes when I was a kid. And that's just the way you did it, right? You didn't think, you didn't think about methane and all those gases back then, did you? No, not at all. I mean, our, my dad is a mechanical engineer, and so he was kind of like, look, the, this oven is, like, dangerous. Like, let me show you how to light the match. And he did explain to us that, that it made the air unhealthy and we didn't want carbon monoxide. That's Danelle Baird. He says it was normal back in those days. It's what everyone did. While many probably never even gave it a second thought, Baird did. And today he's the CEO and founder of Block Power. It's a startup based in Brooklyn, and its focus is to decarbonize buildings, unhooking them from methane and electrifying them. In recent months, the company has attracted big investments to get projects off the ground. And we caught up with Donnell Baird just a few weeks ago. Hi, so excited to be here with you. People know you today as the tech executive behind Block Power, but you worked in community organizing and for the Obama administration before you got into the business. So I have to ask, how did you end up in a climate tech startup? That's a great question. I mean, I was a consultant to the U.S. Department of Energy as they invested six and a half billion dollars in greening buildings across America um, or trying to. And some of it worked really well, but a lot of it didn't. And, um, you know, we needed a lot of Wall Street capital to invest. I think there's like $90 billion of pension fund assets that folks wanted to invest. And a lot of a lot of the bankers would not invest that capital. They thought that green buildings investments were, were not a good investment at that time, right? And so we didn't get all those programs to work as, as, as well as we'd hoped. And so after doing that for a few years, I went to Columbia Business School 
to try to learn enough about business and finance to, to figure out how to have an impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And while I was there, I learned that, you know, it's going to cost trillions of dollars to decarbonize real estate and buildings. And um, there, there just is no path to organizing that kind of capital unless um, there's a for-profit motive um, and rationale. And so uh, while in business school, I kind of pivoted. It was painful, but I pivoted and learned enough about business and finance and technology um, to kind of start my company. You, you founded the company, Block Power, in 2012. Give me your elevator pitch. Tell me, tell me what's the solution you're trying to deliver on. We turn buildings into Teslas, just like <laughs> Tesla has ripped the fossil fuel engine out of vehicles. We're going to rip fossil fuel equipment out of your home. Fossil fuel equipment uh, is poisoning your family with methane and nitrogen dioxide and carbon monoxide. It's also poisoning the planet with um, greenhouse gas emissions. And so we're going to rip all that stuff out and replace it with all electric heating and cooling and hot water. And we're going to save you a bunch of money on your energy expenses. And what's the pitch to the big bucks investors? You're going to invest capital in decarbonizing buildings. You're going to make a pretty good financial return. And that financial return is uncorrelated with the stock market. Um, and there's really great PR because you're helping to decarbonize the economy. Okay. Well, you, it, it appears to be working. You've got investors like Microsoft, Jeff Bezos. Um, why do you think you're able to attract money like that? Is it a simple matter of making a profit or is it the PR part of it? We think that there's lots of folks who are looking to invest capital. Um, they want to make money and they want to help save the planet. And if you can offer people an opportunity to do both, that's attractive to certain kinds of investors. And so that's what we're offering. So you don't think there's some PR effort that helps them look good that they're, they're preoccupied with? I do think that people have their public image and reputation um, as, a, as a primary or, you know, certainly part one of their considerations. I also think that, look, like, Jeff Bezos is a smart dude. Like I, I've, I've had the chance to talk to him and any intelligent person is gonna be really alarmed about climate change. I think he said it best. He like flew in his rocket up to space and he looked down at the planet and it was really fragile. Like it's a thin layer of atmosphere that he talked about and it's a vulnerable planet and it's the only one we've got. And he said that he was very resolved to invest in climate change solutions. These are people who understand that climate change is a real threat and they wanna figure out how to address it. And if you can figure out how to address it while making them some money, um, then you've got a solution. And so that's, that's why we think people have been willing to partner with us. And Block Power has been trying to partner with a city for a while and, and in November Ithaca signed on to electrify its entire building stock. How significant is that? Well, we we were in uh, Scotland and Glasgow at the United Nations um, Climate Conference at the time. And, um, you know, I got on Zoom, dialed into the Ithaca City Council meeting, and they voted to pass the law um, saying that the city of Ithaca was going to be the first city in the world to decarbonize. And, um, you know, it was really exciting. I mean, folks in Glasgow, the city of Glasgow, you know, they read the Washington Post articles and said, well, hey, maybe we can green Glasgow alongside Ithaca. 
and we got emails from people in Australia and Portugal and um, there's just lots of people who are really interested in figuring out how to decarbonize and we think it's really exciting that Ithaca is leading the way and you know we're looking forward to other to other cities around the the country hey maybe some canadian cities can join we <laughs> we we look forward to having other cities around the 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 country and the world decarbonize because if we don't decarbonize like planet's going to burn electrifying ithaca though requires five times the number of renovations block power has done to date um, how are you going to meet that challenge? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you can if you can decarbonize one building, you can decarbonize 10. If you can do 10, you can do a whole neighborhood. If you can do a whole neighborhood, you can do a city. So it's just scaling up the operations. We've done 1,200 buildings. So Ithaca is, you know, five times that size. And we're confident that we can take on Ithaca as well as um, other cities um, around America that we're signing up. And have you signed on to any other cities besides Ithaca? Well, we're working on it. And when when we sign them up, we will send you an email. <laughs> we have a couple, a couple other cities and in the next you know, 30 days, we'll probably be able to start talking about publicly. Okay. President Biden recently announced a partnership between 33 state and local governments to create, this is a quote, cleaner, healthier, more affordable buildings. What does that mean for block power? Greening buildings is high up on the agenda of the nation and of the White House. And so having the president kind of focus and prioritize your industry is great for any industry. I'm just worried, though, if it gives you flashbacks to Obama's building plan. Well, a lot has changed since 2009. I mean, there's cloud computing, there's machine learning, there's the Internet of Things, uh, cold climate heat pumps didn't really exist during the Obama administration, but... They've been functioning in, in, in sub-freezing temperatures. Um, and, and so we just have lots of new technology that we did not have uh, 10 years ago. And that, that is what makes me hopeful. And the new appetite that Wall Street and Silicon Valley and Fortune 500 companies have for decarbonization, we have a, we have a shot, right? We got an outside chance of doing something substantial on climate. I'm curious, when did you get interested in climate change? Was there a, a, a moment or a person that you recall who sort of turned that light bulb on for you? Yeah, one of my best friends um, in college, Mariana Arcaya, she's now a professor of public health at MIT. And um, she she was really um, instrumental in college and educating me on climate. She, you know, encouraged me to go to a class Um and that's that was really the foundation of my commitment to working on climate. And, and did she also marry it up for you with the idea of environmental justice? Did, did those two things knit together right away? No, I mean, I think she was very focused on climate. I think because of my background growing up in uh, financially underserved communities um, and growing up in unhealthy buildings, it was apparent that like, a lot of the conversations that folks were having about climate didn't really prioritize low-income people, working people, poor people. Um, and I wanted to do that. And then as I was in business school and working with the Obama administration, I learned that, um, well, like it or not, most people are working people or low-income. And if you don't come up with solutions that can serve that mass market of folks, um, you're never going to get a climate solution to scale. 
um, part of that is making the technology accessible. And then the other part of it is making sure that um, the folks who have the jobs connected to installing and maintaining and optimizing um, these new technologies, that those folks come from vulnerable communities that have been impacted or will be impacted by climate. You started your career with justice, and I know that's still at the core of what Block Power does, but but I'm kind of curious to know how you've been able to hold on to the, you know, the, the, the community organizer side of yourself while you're knocking on the doors of Wall Street. Hmm. I think that it's been interesting that some of the some of the best managers and leadership um skills actually rely on a lot of principles that are very similar to community organizing. And so community organizing is like really hard. So you have nothing and you have to persuade a lot of other people who have a little more than nothing to become a team and partner with you um, around your shared agenda. And so you have to, you have to paint a clear vision uh, for an achievable goal. And that's what you got to do in business. And that's what, you know, you're supposed to do on Wall Street. So I'm not really motivated by money. And so that has been a little bit of a disconnect for me is I'm much more focused on the climate fight and creating jobs. But this is the path. And if you think seriously about climate change and what needs to happen to address climate change, you'll see that um, aggressively engaging with Wall Street and Silicon Valley, as well as the government is it must be a priority. And so we can't be like too self-righteous or too cool for school. Like we have to engage with the economy in a way that's gonna allow us to decarbonize. Um, and that's that's what I'm focused on is decarbonization. Danelle Baird, I thank you very much for your time and uh, we'll be watching to see uh, which cities are signing up next and whether you sign up anybody here north of the border. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to drive north of the border and work with you guys in Canada. I would love that. It's so nice meeting with you, and I'm, I'm so grateful to you guys for having me on today. So, in the spirit of decarbonization, I'm going to raise the green flag and start your electric engines. I figure you could use a little pick-me-up. All electric? All electric. The BMW iX. Electricity in its ultimate form. Electric Avenue. BMW, the ultimate electric driving. The big automakers packed this year's Super Bowl ad selling all new cars that had one thing in common. Every single car ad that ran during that game was for an electric vehicle. Uh, so this really marks a sea change in terms of where global automakers are going. That's Joanna Kiriatsis. She's with Clean Energy Canada, focusing on transportation. While Super Bowl ads might show us where companies are heading, Kiriatsis works with businesses and government to get more EVs onto the road. And she says one province is racing ahead of the others. So Quebec in particular has set an example for the rest of the country when it comes to electric vehicle policy. Kiriatsis says it's no wonder that almost half of electric vehicles or EV sales in Canada are in Quebec. First, Quebec offers the most generous EV rebates of any province, including for used electric vehicles. Uh, it also offers rebates to help install charging stations in people's homes. 
It's got the largest public charging network of any province too, and it's one of the few provinces that has uh, an EV sales mandate, which requires automakers to sell an increasing percentage of electric vehicles in that province year after year. Quebec wants almost two-thirds of all new cars sold to be EVs by the end of the decade, and all new cars by 2035. If automakers don't comply, they face escalating penalties, up to $20,000 per car. These are more ambitious than what the federal government has set, and we would really love for the Quebec policy to serve as a model for the federal government. Um, If we do want to see 100% electric vehicle sales by 2035 across Canada, we need to go further than 50% EV sales by 2030. I'd love to see at least 65% in line with the Quebec policy. Right now, only 5% of all new cars sold in Canada are electric. But there's news at the federal level, too. The federal government has put forward the clean cars policy package that we have been looking for to support Canada's electric vehicle transition. They have committed to continuing to fund consumer rebates that make electric vehicles more affordable um, and most and mo- most recently um, indicated that they would be expanding this program to make other types of vehicles eligible for rebate money too, like electric pickup trucks, SUVs, and even um, used vehicles. There are also federal investments in new charging stations, even for apartment buildings. And Ottawa is also looking at imposing new sales quotas for automakers following in Quebec's footsteps. Now what we need is for the federal government to make good on these promises and to do so fast if we want to keep up with global momentum around electric vehicles. Global automakers are going all in on EVs. So big companies like General Motors, Ford, Mercedes-Benz, they've all committed to sell only zero emission vehicles in advanced markets by 2035 and then in the rest of the world by 2040. Kiriatsis thinks this global momentum is the best news story of all. It gives her hope that Canada is on the way to electric driving. If you look at other peer countries around the world, um, like Germany, France, and the UK, in just the last two years, those countries saw their EV sales shares increase by 10 times. Um, So now in Germany, one in three new cars are electric, and in the UK and France, it's one in five. In Norway, the world leader, an astounding 91% of new cars sold uh, last November were electric. These are numbers that we never thought possible just a few years ago. And I think that we're about to see Canada um, ramp up its EV sales in a similar way. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. From the way we drive to the food we eat, climate change affects us all. 
In Newfoundland and Labrador, most food is shipped in. So two years ago, when the so-called Snowmageddon buried much of the province in a record-setting, days-long blizzard, it reminded so many people just how vulnerable they are to a changing climate. Luckily, there are people working to change that. And some of them happen to listen to the show. Dan Rubin wrote to us about a project called the Food Producers Forum. He's a co-founder and chairperson, and we reached Dan Rubin earlier this month in Pooch Cove. Hello, Laura. This is uh, wonderful to be uh, here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. Can you, first of all, just paint us a picture. How is climate change affecting food security in Newfoundland and Labrador? It's a situation that's growing more and more concerning because it started out a few years ago that we were figured we were figuring it out that 90% of our fresh food gets shipped in by truck or by plane or by boat. And that's not a story that has a good ending. It also means that this time of year, and we're talking in the middle of February, when I go into the grocery store, the vegetables that I see look really bad, really wilted. And that means that they don't have nearly the nutritional value that they had when they were picked. So we're extremely vulnerable to climate change, not only in terms of the supply line that brings in our food, but in terms of the fact that the food arrives here after traveling thousands of miles, and it's not as healthy as it needs to be. Well, you've laid out the problem quite well. So what is your group doing to try to increase local food production? There are, are a lot of groups here looking at the problem critically and researching it and talking about it as an issue and as a problem. What makes Food Producers Forum different is that we're trying to make real change happen at the ground level, at the grassroots level. So we have nine projects on the go currently and a great board of directors keeping all of that on track. We're building an earth-sheltered greenhouse at the O'Brien Farm in the middle of St. John's to demonstrate the capacity for year-round indoor greenhouse food production. We have found six sites, actually we found 26 sites, communities right across the province interested in this model of greenhouse. And we're collaborating with six of them to build greenhouses in their community gardens and on their family farms. We've developed a website, foodproducersforum.com, with more than 250 pages of information for gardeners and growers, foragers, fishers, and hunters. We have plans for a provincial conference in early May on the topic of regeneration, soil, food, and community. And we are actively collecting the missing data on the amount and variety of food production at the community level in our province. Those are some of our projects. A lot of work. I, I just wonder, you use the phrase earth-sheltered greenhouse. Now, I've, I know what a greenhouse is, but I'm not sure what a, an earth-sheltered one is. What, what is that? What does it look like? So I will give you the Newfoundland version of the explanation, <laughs> which is a greenhouse with its arse in the earth. <laughs> It's a greenhouse that that is the baby of the greenhouse and the root cellar in that it's a building with a concrete back wall built into a hillside facing south so that when the light comes in through the southern facing windows or polycarbonate sheets, 
it hits the concrete and that sunlight energy gets absorbed. And therefore, you only need to add about 10% heat to what is already there from the sun, even in the middle of winter. So it's a device for growing food year round by making maximum use of sunlight energy. Uh, we have a working model of this already in place in a neighboring town of Flat Rock, where David Goodyear uh, has designed and built his. And right through that Snowmageddon event, he was growing beautiful leafy greens, uh, and he spent $5 a month for heat to do that. Wow. Okay. You, got the, you mentioned six other communities applying for grants to build similar greenhouses. Yes. One of the successful applicants is a young woman named Casey Budgel. She's 14 years old. She lives in Kings Point, and I just want to play a clip of her. I was so excited the day that I actually got picked. I started like jumping up and down in my classroom, just screaming. I was so happy. Where I envision this going is to actually to have the greenhouse itself and to let the people that may not have the land or the means to actually have a place of their own to go up there and use it as if it was their own, to provide for their families and to, per and to just enjoy growing with family members and have the time spent with them. So what's your reaction to hearing that, that excitement in Casey's voice and what oh, she had to say? Casey, Casey is a wonder. Casey is a hero of mine because she just turned 15 and she has this complete picture of community food production. Kings Point sits in a beautiful glacial valley carved up by the glaciers, where a long ocean inlet comes in and comes right up to the town. So they have marine resources. We, we jigged 60 pounds of squid with her family wow. in 20 minutes in their boat. Uh, but they also have a long history of agricultural production. There are only a very few places in our province that have good alluvial soil, and Kings Point is one of them. And what she wants to see is a total rebirth of community produced food. So working with her and her family, when we went out there, uh, we met outdoors in a circle with 16 people. And Casey was there and her parents and two fellow students and two representatives of local mining companies and the MHA, the member of the House of Assembly and the mayor and three members of council. And they all pointed at Casey and they said, we're doing what she says. <laughs> She sounds amazing. I mean, it's, it can't get better than that. You know, hope for the future. Well, there it is. She, she, uh, she, that's great. She's not the only one who's excited about local growing, though. What other kind of interest have you been seeing? Well, of these six sites, and I'll kind of uh, name them off, one of them is the Codroy Valley, which is a traditional agricultural area at the far side of the province from St. John's, uh, very close to where the ferry lands at Porta Basque. And that's a collaborative between a Mi'kmaq fabric artist, Megan Sams, and the local credit union. And they've built a community garden there called the Codroy Community Service Garden. And every bit of food that that garden grows is being given away at the community level. Wow. And then we have Nathan Gidge and his partner, Samantha, and their four-year-old son, Gabriel. And they are, in, they are farming by intention in a gravel pit on a hillside in the town of Gambo. And they've chosen to be there to show that it is possible using permaculture methods to grow food literally anywhere. And they are a family farm, but they've committed that half the food they grow 
will be given to families in need. And that's the kind of energy we're encountering, and it's going on right across this province. This is amazing, what you've managed to do um, on a grassroots level, or it seems as though it's a grassroots level. I'm wondering if you can tell me what you, you see as being at stake for the people around where you live. I think this is true for everyone in the world at this point. But what living on islands shows you is the world in a microcosm. And so here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have a population of about half a million people, about half of whom live in the city centre in and around St. John's. But we're on an island and our food comes in for the most part by truck and boat and plane. And we're sitting ducks for the climate emergency. So already that emergency is taking shape. Families that don't have the income to deal with the rising price of food or people who are trying to figure out where their food will come from uh, are waking up to the fact that we have to grow our own food. We have a Facebook page here, Backyard Farming and Homesteading. It has 38,000 members, 23,000 of whom are local residents. So what's at stake for us is survival, our future, as well as the fact that we know that every head of broccoli that's grown here will be healthier and it won't have to travel thousands of miles to get here. So we're restoring health at the same time we're conserving carbon. What's on uh, the menu at your house for supper today? Oh, I'm proud to say that we're going to be cooking cod that I caught from a friend's boat sailing out of the dock at Torbay. And we may have some of our greens from the garden because even though it's February, when I go out the door and walk over to the raised bed that has a lid covered with plastic, I can raise it and pick chard and bring that in and cook that for supper. So we'll have some of our homegrown greens, we'll have cod, and we'll probably have some rice grown in India to go with it. <laughs> Two out of three isn't bad. <laughs> Two out of three is darn good for these days. Yeah. I'm pretty jealous. But, you know, it, it, the whole thing that I've learned from this, I have to tell you this, is that what I've learned, because I thought this journey when I first started as a gardener and then as a garden educator, I thought it was about food. And really what it's about is community. And what we've been learning through these projects, and I hear this just about every single day now, is that everybody's on the same page and we're all working together. And uh, there is such a deep sense of collaboration, drawing in part on the tradition of generosity, which is so basic to being a Newfoundlander and Labradorian, but also with a new sense of urgency that what's happening here is phenomenal. It's unbelievable. I feel very fortunate to be part of it. Dan Rubin, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Eat well. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll think of you as I put my hot sauce on my cod tonight. Thank you, Laura. It's wonderful to be part of what you're doing. And thank you so much for providing this cross-country connection. It was a real delight to talk to Dan, and it reinforces something about the show that, that we really enjoy a lot, and that is to hear from you. Uh, the reason why we spoke to him is because Dan got in touch with us, so I'm encouraging all of you to do the same. We'd like to hear from you. Get in touch with us. The email address is earth 
at cbc.ca about anything, but particularly if you have a project that you want to let us know about, because we may end up putting you on the radio. This week's show was produced by Serena Renner. The What on Earth team includes associate producer Rachel Sanders and producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.